0: to offer ourselves as living sacrifices, which would be acceptable worship, that we would not just be here and not just sing praise, but offer our very bodies as living sacrifices in your name for your glory. We pray, Father, that that might be true of the hearts in this room, that you would open up our minds and hearts to your word in a way that we would understand your heart, your desire, your will for us today, that your word would be clear. And Father, that we might be responsive in obedience, out of love for all the incredible grace that you've bestowed upon us. We love you and we thank you for being our God and our King. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. amen. You may be seated. Well, a woman looked outside her back window, and she was horrified to see her German shepherd dog shaking the life out of the neighbor's rabbit. They'd had trouble with this neighbor, and this was going to make things worse. And so she grabbed her broom, and she went out and beat the dog until the dog dropped the rabbit. She looked down at the rabbit, and the rabbit was extremely dirty and extremely dead, She didn't know what she was going to do, so she took the rabbit, flipped it up on the broom, and she brought it into her bathtub, and she showered it off on one side, and it looked kind of clean, and so she decided she'd flip it over, and she cleaned it off on the other side until it was completely white. And so then she thought to herself, well, I'll go get the hair dryer. So she got the hair dryer, began to comb and brush the dead rabbit on one side and then on the other side. And then she thought, well, what should I do? What should I do? So she took this now nicely groomed rabbit, looking somewhat alive, and she peeked over the fence to see if the neighbor was there. And she hopped over the fence with the rabbit, put the rabbit in the cage of her neighbor and propped it up so as if it were alive. And then closed the gate and went back and hopped over her fence. Two hours later, she heard her neighbor screaming, pretending not to know what's going on. She went over to the fence going, what happened? What happened? And the lady said this. She said, our rabbit, our rabbit, he died two weeks ago. We buried him and now he's back. (laughs) So, and the reason I share that with you is it's highly illustrative of a lot of people who come to church. They're all propped up on the outside, looking really, really nice, but they're what? Dead on the inside. Reminding us that it is so important that biblical faith is a matter of the heart. Some years ago, my wife Jean was playing badminton with me, and we were, you know, in a hot competition. And so she's went back for a really difficult shot, and she slipped off her slippers, and she actually broke her foot. Now, she made the shot and won the game, so it was worth it, but understand, she basically had this dysfunctional foot that was not really bad enough for a cast, and so she hobbled around, but within days, her foot began to atrophy, atrophy. In other words, it became increasingly dysfunctional because of disuse. Her foot atrophied. Atrophied is not just a physical problem but it's also a spiritual danger, and atrophy strikes most at our relationship with Christ, and it tends to strike most often at our hearts, our hearts. Very quickly in the Christian life, our hearts can tend to become dysfunctional. They can actually atrophy because of disuse, and we begin to live by the easy way, which is by externals, even showy behavior, and really not driven by our hearts. Ever seen one of those medieval gothic buildings? They have such massive ceilings that the walls can't support them. So what they have on the outside is giant support beams called flying buttresses that hold up these heavy ceilings. That's a very good metaphor for the Christian life because if you're in Christ, you're a cathedral, the dwelling place of the living God. And your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, and Christ lives in you, and yet have you noticed that we tend to sometimes live the Christian life by the externals that hold us up? Which one is yours, the flying buttress of church attendance, good family? Maybe it's that you're involved in discipleship, or you follow a detailed list of do's and don'ts. But if we were to take your flying buttresses away, would we find that you're empty inside? Or worse, would your so-called faith collapse? What's holding you up? Is it Christ in you? Or is it some form of external? Interesting enough, what kind of scaffolding makes you look good without having to deal with the internal heart condition? We can go through life, can we not? Would you nod in agreement that we can go through life and have our hearts not engaged? Yes? Amen? It's true. And understand Christianity is first and foremost a matter of the heart. Authentic Christianity is actually intended by God to be an inside-out experience. Having a spiritually healthy heart makes the difference between being a real and a phony, being a godly person or being a Pharisee, being someone who is truly in a personal relationship or a fake one. So... Maybe you're asking, is the heart really that important? Well, God thinks so, and I've got some scriptures that I want you to either look at very quickly or to listen to very carefully. In Joel chapter 2, verse 13, God told the Israelites to rend your heart and not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God. Don't put on an external show, God says. Make sure that you're driven by your internal heart before God. First Samuel 16, 7, you know this passage really well, I'm sure. For God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Samuel is being talked to by the Lord to say, don't look at David's really studly and incredibly impressive older brothers, that's not what I'm looking at. I'm not looking at their externals, I'm looking at their heart." Proverbs 4 verse 23 says above all else guard your heart for it is the wellspring of life. What does the heart mean in the Bible? What do our theological dictionaries tell us? Pretty pretty positive, pretty focused. It, the heart means the authentic you. Who you really are. Where you desire, where you deliberate, where you decide. That's the heart. It's the heart's the place of spiritual activity. It's the seal of your inner spiritual life. The heart's the place where God meets you, the place of fellowship with Him, the place where God reveals Himself to you. The heart in the Bible is often used to describe your affections, your desires, your priorities, how you think and how you're made, and really how you make your decisions. The heart and a spiritually healthy heart is essential to a right relationship with God, and that's why in Second Chronicles, chapter 16, verse 9, it says, "For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the whole earth, that He might strongly support those whose heart is completely His." The Marines are looking for a few good men. Semper Fi. God's looking for a few good hearts. Hearts. Christ is mainly concerned about your heart. Where it's at before Him. Not your singing, not your appearance, not your note-taking, not your friends, not your emotions, but who you really are. And that's why Christ directed most of His teaching right at the heart. He even talked about Israel being they, they, they put on this incredible show but their hearts are far from me. So, Why is Christ then directing most of his teaching it this way, at the heart? What do I mean? Well, after his baptism and temptation, Christ catches everybody's attention by cleaning out the temple, then wowing Nicodemus with the need to be born again. And then after some time at the Jordan River, what he does is he goes to Capernaum on the north side of the Sea of Galilee, and here he begins his second year of ministry that many people call the year of popularity. The crowds are so large that he doesn't have time to actually pray during the day. He has got to get early to prayer uh, because there's so much demand. They don't even have time to eat. Now, why is Christ so popular during this second year of public ministry? Well, there are three reasons for it. One is because of the people he chooses to be with. He chooses to be with the common, everyday person. Uh, he, He actually doesn't hang out with important people. He hangs out with regular people. And nobody important came from Galilee, and 11 out of the 12 disciples are from Galilee. Only one of them is from Judea, where all the important people are from, and you know which one that was, right? Yeah, Judas Iscariot. Almost everybody that Jesus talks to, eats with, walks around with are just the everyday people of the land. And the Pharisees had a popularity complex. You know, they only hung out with the influential, and so this celebrity complex put them in a different category. Christ, though, spent his time with hurting people, regular people like you and me, people who needed him, and that made him very, very popular. The second reason that Christ becomes so popular is because his miracles became even more spectacular than they were before. What do I mean by that? Well, during his second year of ministry, uh, he finds himself in Cana in John chapter 4, and a royal official asks him to heal his dying son who's in Capernaum. That's 14 miles away. Are you ready for this? He's going to heal somebody who's 14 miles away. And everyone he's healed up to this point has been right there. Now he just says a word, and he's healed 14 miles away. That's significant. And he, without a long distance clung, calling plan either. That's amazing. And the third reason why Christ was so popular were the things he said. The things he said were simple enough for a child to understand, but so profound that they could crack the hardest heart in every way. In fact, Christ talked most about the heart. Why? Because the religionists of his day... We're basically only focusing on external traditions, not internal realities and relationship. And during this time, Jesus did break some external traditions, not the law, but tradition. He heals a sick man with a withered hand on the Sabbath, and then his disciples pick and eat grain on the Sabbath, and all of this breaks the Pharisees' external rules. And this is really, really upsetting to them, and Christ reminds the Pharisees that their external rules about the Sabbath are not as important as a heart of mercy And a heart of compassion towards the hurting. And this really ticks the Pharisees off. And they think to be right with God means keeping all these traditions and working your way to heaven. And Jesus says to be right with God means an internal heart transformation that God alone can do by his grace. It's a gift. God must do it for you by his grace. So the Pharisees decide that somehow, some way, during this second year of popularity, that they're going to try to kill Jesus. They're going to try to murder him. As a result, Christ withdraws to the Sea of Galilee. But being so popular, this huge crowd of people, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, follow him. And as he arrives, he preaches the most incredible sermon ever. He is going to compare external righteousness. I'll write this down. External righteousness with internal transformation. External righteousness, internal transformation. Rule keeping versus internal heart change. Pharisee religion versus a Jesus relationship. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. I want to call it today the Sermon on the Heart. It's the Sermon on the Heart. Now follow along if you would. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, 6 and 7. And what we're going to do today is complement the ministry of your pastor. One of the best exegetes, and I'm not just saying this because he's sitting here, on the planet... He's amazing, I love him, he's great, but you're getting such solid Bible teaching that I thought we would go broad today, all right, give you a compliment, a a large picture that you would never get. But sometimes the big picture can show you some profound things, so we're hoping to do that. I teach just like he does at my church, about two to three verses, sometimes one word a week. But understand, I do. I do. I just want to give you the big picture as we're about to open this up this fall at our church. I wanted to show you the large overview of this most profound sermon. So stay with me. Give me some grace. The acoustics are great. They're on a giant slope at right there at the Sea of Galilee. Uh, the crowd is quiet. He begins to speak, and he, as he does, is really going to do open heart surgery on us. He's going to show you your heart today. Are you Ready? So let's look at point number one. Number one, the need for a changed heart. The need for a changed heart. As he begins this sermon, he shows us the kind of heart that he gives to his children. He's showing us what he does when he saves someone. He shows us the kind of changes that Christ makes in people, not external changes. That's how the lost look at Christians. It's all a bunch of externals. He's talking about what he really does, transformation. You've heard the term, correct? That you're justified by God, but you're also regenerated by Jesus Christ. Can I hear an amen to that? That means you're born again. That means you have a new heart, and that new heart is described multiple ways throughout the New Testament. Romans 6, 17, you have a heart that now wants to obey him. It's not because you're trying to earn his favor, you already have his favor, and now you want to please him from this new heart. That's what he's talking about here. So let's look at this new heart. First in your outline positively, we need new heart attitudes. New heart attitudes. Who are the truly happy? Uh, what's a genuine Christian heart? Look at Matthew chapter 5. It describes those who are genuinely saved. Take a look at verse 3, the poor in spirit. That's those who depend on God completely. The Pharisees Unlike them, the poor in spirit hearts, the spiritual beggars, have nothing to offer God on their own, nor in their own strength. They know they stand empty before a God who basically has all power and all authority. Verse 4, take a look, those who mourn over their sin, unlike the Pharisees, they admit, these new hearts now admit their sinners before God, they see their desperate need before a holy God. Uh, Verse 5, they say it's gentle, or some versions say meek. That's the correct term, meek, who, unlike the Pharisees, submit under God's loving authority. They obey God without delay. They obey God without resistance. They want to please Him, even when they fail to. Verse 6, those who have an appetite for God, unlike the Pharisees who are content with externals, transform heart hungers for God and hungers for doing right. That's something that He's made that change in our lives. In fact, look at verse 7. He gives his children a heart that is merciful, full of compassion towards others. You might want to write this down. It's true. How much mercy you show is the result of how much mercy you know. When you are the recipient of God's mercy, that's when you demonstrate mercy. When you forget how much mercy he's given you, that's when you hesitate with demonstrating mercy. Look at verse 8. It says, God's children are pure in heart. What's that? It's those whose first concern is not being outwardly correct, but inwardly holy. It's not doing pure things. It's being made pure inside. Christ is telling us a pure heart can only come from Him. Your dirty heart before God must be made and was made clean by Him. And who are the truly happy? Verse 9 The peacemakers, those who find peace with God and demonstrate that peace with others as they try to get along, Uh, they want to make sure they find that peace and others know the peace of the Lord. Verse 10, those who are willing to accept persecution by identifying with Christ, his children will also be hated by the externalists. You know, know, what is it that makes us hated? You you all know that, right? When when you understand the gospel, uh, the gospel basically teaches some very clear points One is that you're so sinful, a perfect God had to save you. Now, when you tell that to people, they don't like that all the time. Are you with me? You say, you are disgustingly sinful. They're not necessarily always receptive to that. Uh, when, When you say you're so sinful that only Christ can save you, that God does all the work, that's an assault against human pride, is it not? Instead of trying to work your way to heaven, God has to do all of it. Every other faith on planet earth, you all know this, is trying to work their way to heaven. Do this, do this, do this, do this. Only Christianity, only the gospel taught in the New Testament, only this one, is telling you you'll never do it. God had to do the work on your behalf, and we entrust his work on our behalf. Are you getting it? And sometimes that's very offensive. In fact, you're so sinful, salvation can only be found in Christ alone, no other way. And that also is an offense to many people. So when you begin to live that out, teach that out, there's going to be pushback. The Bible calls that persecution. There's going to be pushback. And yet, what does he say? He says, we're going to be happy. Why? Verses 13 through 16, because we're going to be able to create a thirst for God like salt who shine like light with attractive, not moral, but attractive good deeds that bring glory to God. So what kind of heart do you have? As you evaluate your heart, is that your heart? Is that what you want to become? Interesting enough, uh, during the Easter season, have you ever seen the bunnies? Okay, I'm I'm, I'm on bunnies today. I don't know why. So you get these chocolate bunnies, right? And they're all covered with aluminum foil and they're all decorative. Are you tracking with me? Now, I never get those and never give them away, but I see them at the store. and, And it's interesting, if you don't hold them very carefully, what happens? You squeeze them and what do they do? They just collapse, right? Well, God's talking about a heart that has substance, not one that looks all shiny on the outside, but the moment you press up against it, it just falls apart. He's talking about when I save someone, I begin to work in them substance, where when you're pushed against, like persecution, you can stand firm. There's a a solidity to being in Christ. And, And this truth is what then Jesus is trying to present to this crowd of listening people, not only a new heart attitude, but secondly, in your outline, negatively, we need to deal with heart issues, heart issues. The Pharisees were t- really content to correct their surface behavior, but they ignored their internal heart illness of sin. But Christ shows us how desperately important it is to look beyond the external behavior and examine internal heart issues of the heart. Now, how caught up are you, as I want you to be honest, with externals? Which, you know, and sometimes it's, it's really difficult for us not to be. But what do you look for in people? If I'm not careful, uh, this is the past now, I used to look at people on the basis of their credentials. Anybody do that? Their credentials. Certain cultures, you're exchanging cards, and you're finding out where they stand, you know, and you're, you're looking for external credentials. Like, what degree do you have? Or, how much can you bench? Ugh. Okay, guys, uh. What style of clothes do you wear? What school did you graduate from? The only people who really care are people from USC. So, um, <laughs> what kind of paycheck do you bring home? It's just like the Pharisees. They were concerned about credentials, the externals. You say, wait a minute, Chris, I'm a leader. I give, I serve, I'm involved. I know the Bible, I even know the names of the Canaanite tribes, you know, the Amorites, the Hittites, the termites. I got it down, all right? So in a world that focuses on credentials, God focuses on your heart. Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. In other words, do a spiritual EKG on me. So what's God looking for in my heart? He says, let's do a spiritual EKG, Matthew 521 and following. Let's do that EKG and evaluate your heart in light of internal issues. He says in verses 21 and 22, the Pharisees said, don't murder. Jesus said, don't just avoid murder, but don't internally hate. Don't be angry. Don't allow an attitude of anger to be prevalent in your life. Verses 27 to 30, the Pharisees said, don't commit adultery. Jesus said, don't internally lust. How serious are we about that second long look? or internet porn, etc. Those are hard issues. They start there. They start as hard issues. In verses 31 to 32, the Pharisees said, if you divorce, give your spouse divorce papers. But Christ says here in this context, don't divorce unless your spouse commits adultery. In verses 33 to 37, the Pharisees said, don't make weak promises. Jesus said, don't just avoid bad oaths, but keep your word. When you say you will do it, do it. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Then he says, verses 38 to 42, the Pharisee says, don't take revenge. Jesus says, don't just avoid getting even, but be a peacemaker. Give up your rights and die to yourself. Verses 43 to 48, the Pharisee said, hate your enemies. Jesus said, not only love your enemies, but pray for them. You begin to, study First John and other portions of Scripture, you'll find that it's actually hypocritical to say that you're good with God when you're not good with others. There's a connection. Can you see what Christ is saying here? He says, externals don't make you righteous. You need a new heart for, from God, not only new attitudes, but a heart that deals with internal sins to live righteous or right, Righteous. And just in case you're not getting it, Christ reminds us this new internal heart, this incredible internal transformation, are you ready, can only come from him. You Can't work it up, can't do it yourself, it must come from him. That's why he says in Matthew 5, 48, what's he say there? Look at it. Therefore, you are to be what? Perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And you say, I can't be perfect, and that's correct. You can't be. That's why you need God's perfections, God's righteousness covering you. Are you Ready? So in faith, you're believing what Christ did for you on the cross by dying there and rising from the dead, and I'm putting my hope, my life in His hands. Then He can cover you with His righteousness, which enables you to then stand before God now and stand before Him for all eternity, not because of what you did, but because of what He did. Are you getting it? Your perfect standing comes from Christ covering you in his righteousness, the white robe of righteousness. And that's what he's talking about here. You say, well, how do, I, how do I have that right heart or not? Well, do I have that right heart? How do I know? Well, number two in your outline, the tests of a transformed heart. Let's look at the tests to help us determine what kind of heart we have. Now, it's true. I can learn a lot about your heart by how you do internet searches, Right? Now, there's some of you in this room, if you were to say, I'm searching about, can the bear beat the lion, all right? If you're doing that, you have a guy heart, all right? You're a guy, because gals typically don't do that. And, and, and if somehow it's what my husband will do, that's typically a wife heart. Uh, if you're doing searches about medical things and medicine pretty much all the time, that means you have a 50-year-old and older heart, Okay? And if you're searching about who John Eliph is, you have a right heart. Okay, that's good. Yeah. So Christ even makes it even more simple as he starts out chapter six. He says, You can know what's in your heart by passing four tests. That's what he gives you. First in your outline, test number one look for spiritual disciplines. Look at your spiritual disciplines. Now, what are your motives for living the spiritual life? What are your motives? What drives you? In, In chapter six, verses one through 18, Christ refers to three types of spiritual disciplines, giving, and then prayer, and then fasting, those three. To know if you have a right heart before God, ask yourself, do I practice these disciplines of the heart? That's one. Secondly, do I do them to be seen by men, or do I do it to please my Lord, for Him? That's the big question. When you give, is it for a tax return or for the Lord? Uh. You only pray when you pray. Is it only at church or do you pray in your closet or at home when no one knows? Do you ever fast without anyone ever knowing? Look at chapter 6, verse 1. Take a look. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. That word noticed or in the ESV seen is actually the word where we get our English word for theater. He says, "Are, are you doing this to put on a show? To, to impress people. Is your heart yearning to give, to pray, to fast to God, or is it so that other people can see me do these things? Otherwise, read the rest of verse 1. He says, you have no reward with your Father who's in heaven. So what's the test? Look at verse 5. And when you pray, you are not to be as the hypocrites, for they love to pray in order to be seen by men. But you, verse 6, when you pray, go to your inner room, and when you have shut the door, pray to your Father who's in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will, what, repay you. Basically, Jesus is asking this, do you carry on your relationship with Christ in secret? I find it fascinating that in this context, the word secret's repeated five times. He's very concerned about, like, do you live your life when no one knows? You know, do you live for Christ when no one's watching you? Uh, David used to call it uh, that I I live uh, with my Lord in integrity uh, in my house, meaning that even when no one sees, I'm living for him. Is it in secret or is it always in public? Do you pass test number one? Here's test number two. Christ also says to know what kind of heart you have. This is to help you determine it. He says look for your investments or look at your investments. Number two, test number two, look at your investments. Verses 19 to 24, he says... What you do with your money and your time is a test of your heart. In fact, look what he says in verse 21. You know this verse. For where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Christ says, I know a lot about your heart by what you do with your treasure. Now, there's two treasure chests in this life. One of them is the treasure chest of this world, which says life is all about basically people, you know, seeing you being popular gaining money possessions climbing the ladder etc that's what life is all about having men's applause the second treasure chest of this world is Christ's eternal kingdom people who are fired up about god's kingdom live in a way in which they sense god's smile they're seeking to please him no matter who's watching they invest in god's purposes through love servanthood giving of themselves for christ's cause now, I can tell a lot about your treasure, and you can tell a lot about my treasure, of what I treasure, and the affections of my heart, by looking at two pieces of your equipment, all right? Two pieces, your calendar and your bank statement. If you're younger, then you're loose change, all right? Jesus says, we will know which world you're fired up about. We'll know what's in your heart if your calendar and your bank statement reflect your primary investment in this world system, That's a bad spiritual sign, but if your iPhone calendar and large blocks of time are invested into God's system and large blocks of money invested into God's purposes, that's a good sign. What's your bank statement and calendar say about your heart? Do you pass test number two? This is just, again, we know what your heart's like by the way you use these things, your time and money. Christ says also to know what kind of heart you have. Test number three is look at your trust level, your trust level. In verses 25 to 34, he says, You know what's in your heart by the level of trust you place in your Father. Look at verse 31. Do not be anxious then, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? Shall, what shall we wear uh, our clothes or clothe ourselves with? Skip to verse 33. But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious for tomorrow... For tomorrow will care for itself, and each day has enough trouble of its own. Now, I found it very interesting that the German word for worry means to strangle. Isn't that a great term for worry? Because that's exactly what it does. It just is emotional strangulation. It, it chokes the joy right out of life. So how do you stop? Well, worry and the cause of worry is a wrong focus. Uh, Like Peter getting out of the boat. He looks at Christ, no problem. He looks at the waves, he's devastated. He's going to sink. Where's your focus? Do you trust God with your daily needs? Or are you anxious, worrying, and nervous about each day? The amount of worry versus the amount of trust tells you what's in your heart. It's those believers whose heart is then focused on a sovereign God who is all-wise, who has all-power and never makes a mistake, that's the people who trust, because their focus is on him. And finally, Christ says to know what kind of heart you have, test number four, look at your relationships. Look at your relationships. Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 12, Christ tells his listeners how they treat others will show them what's in their heart. So Christ asks, do you judge others, verses 1 through 6? And then do you expect your Father to answer you as you come to Him over these issues, 7 through 11? And then look at verse 12. Do you treat others fairly? He says, "Do whatever, you, Therefore, whatever you want others to do for you, do so for them, for this is the law and the prophets. This is the golden rule. It is actually in the Bible. Whatever you want others to do for you, do so for them, For this is the law and the prophets. Do you treat others the way you want to be treated? Do you elevate yourself above others like the Pharisees did? For how you treat others will show your heart. So, do you pass test number four? Now, I could go on and on and on. Now, that's what the pastor says when he runs out of material, right? I could go on and on and on. But understand... Christ has now convinced us of the need for a new heart. He has helped us to test our hearts, and he will tell us what to do now. What's profound about this sermon is it's actually shorter than what I can actually exposit. It's like 25 minutes, and yet one of the greatest sermons ever given. And he's walking through and stripping away the externalism of his day. And he's saying, look, I want you to understand that salvation has got to transform you. It's got to change you. It's got to make you a new person that wants to follow, wants to please, and delights in me. So he says, what do we do about it? Well, now that he's convinced us of the need, then ask yourself, what kind of heart do you want? You want the real internal heart relationship with Christ or the phony external religion of the Pharisees? So that's point number three, the path to a changed heart. The path to a changed heart. Read Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14. He says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And how many? Many are those who enter it. Then look what he says in verse 14 For the gate is small. And the way is narrow that leads to life. And how many find it? Few. It's quite a comparison. The path to a changed heart doesn't come by the wide road of external works and self-righteousness. One more time. I'm compelled to tell you this. Every faith on planet earth, even secular, is all saying, I'm going get, to somehow get there on my own. Every single one. Only Christians. Only Christianity, only the genuine gospel that Jesus taught said you will never be right with God unless you entrust yourself to his work. Something that he does in your heart so that that what springs forth from that is faith and repentance and all of a sudden now you're trusting in what he did in his death and his resurrection that he took of all God's wrath for your sin upon himself, that he suffered and died there to take your place, substituted and rose from the dead, so now if I entrust him, he can cover me, and he not only covers me, at the same time he justifies me, he regenerates me. He talked to Nicodemus about, right, you must be what? Born again, regenerated, made new, with a heart that wants to follow him, and that's what he's talking about here. He basically says many people are going to be on the wide road of self-righteousness, do it on their own, but this small gate, this narrow road, because you need to enter alone, the turnstile fits only one person at a time, you don't bring anything with you, you got a few naked, and you can't basically bring anything to the table. All your self-confidence, all your self-satisfaction, all your self-achievement must be let behind. Like a child, you depend on your heavenly Father alone. That's salvation. And Jesus goes on to warn us in verses 15 to 23 about the heartless, I-can-do-it-myself external religion path of the Pharisees. What's he say? Look at verses 16 to 20. He says that you will know them by their what? Their fruits. Watch out for egotistical, proud, self-centered, self-indulgent, self-willed, self-satisfaction religion, the religion that's all about you. That is so popular today. Don't listen to them. Don't follow them. For if you do, your external behavior may change. You may do good works. You may look good on the outside, but when you stand before Christ and He looks into your heart, what's He going to say? Verse 23, look at it. Look at verse 23. It says, I never, what? I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Oh, you were talking about me, but it wasn't genuine. You weren't born again. The issue is not how much you know. The issue is what kind of fruit you show, you produce. And thankfully, Christ tells us how to get that new heart. Verse 24, he says, And every one of you who hears these words of mine and acts upon them may be compared to a wise man who built his house upon the rock. And the rains descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and burst against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded upon the rock. Hawaii is a great reminder, isn't it? all the beaches about building your house on the sand. It just doesn't last. This only endures. And ask God to give you a new heart, to seek him. And if he calls you, to transform you from the inside out. So you'll want to obey him, you'll want to love him. And guess what? You'll want to follow him. What does Jesus say? My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. You will. Only the new heart that God alone gives his children will cause to you to follow his word now and make you ready for heaven later. So how should you respond today? How do you respond to the Lord's heart x-ray? He just exposed you. He dealt with some things, probably pointed out a few things, areas that need to be worked on. I'd say letter A, ask God to give you a transformed heart. Ask God to give you a transformed heart. Religion can make you feel good about yourself. You can clean up the outside. You can make people think you're spiritual. But only Christ can forgive you. Only Christ can cleanse you. Only Christ can transform you from the inside out. Cry out to Christ to save you. Ask Him to awaken your heart so you might put all your trust in Him. For when he does, you will be different. Listen, you'll look the same on the outside, but you won't be the same. That's that's one of the things that is just amazing about Christianity, is it not? Somebody who is going down a path and then, bam, when the Lord transforms them, it's a totally different direction. For me, it was at 18 years old, and the Lord just crushed me under the weight of my sin, showed me the path that I was following was absolute defiance of him, And all I wanted when he saved me was to just, I just want to do what he wants me to do. I just want to please him. I want to learn his word. I want to be with his people. And I want to somehow share with others about how to be born again. I know many of you have the same testimony. Cry out to Christ. All things become new, the Bible says. You won't turn over a new leaf as a Christian. You get a new life, right? Behold, all things become new. Letter B. Remember, the heart is the number one issue in your walk. The number one issue. One famous pastor said it this way, the heart of the problem is a problem of the heart. Whatever you're going through today, the first thing to look at is your heart before the Lord. Am I trusting Him? Am I counting it all joy? Am I relying on Him? Do I believe that God is sovereign even when you know, people do evil things to me, like Joseph said to his brothers, you know? you know you meant it for evil but God meant it for good when your heart is right your walk will be right when your heart is in communion with Christ no matter what's happening in your life you will experience joy when you drift into externals you forfeit your joy I know this and many of you know it too amen are there not Christians here we drift into externals come on we do it we do it why are Christians not happy? Lifestyle without heart style. We all prone to live by the scaffolding. We become hollow at heart. We let atrophy set in. Cultivate your heart with secret communion. Delight in Him alone. Consider everything else refuse. That's what Paul did. Everything in my life is refuse compared to knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. And then let her see. If your heart is in atrophy, repent now. A few years back, a, heart, a friend of mine had a heart attack. And when all the EMT guys showed up and all the emergency care people came and they started looking at them and they go, look, your hair, your hair's not combed and, and your shirt, it's not tucked in. We got to tuck that shirt in and your shoelaces, they're not tied. We got to fix those up. That's really bad. Now, you're looking at me going, they didn't do that. I Hopefully, you're thinking that, because if they did, we're all in a lot of trouble. right? They didn't do any of that. They went right for the heart. They went right for investigating what's going on there, because when you have a heart issue, the externals don't matter, right? Same with us. If you've got heart issues today, I would beg you, as Christ would prioritize in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Don't mess with the externals. Just go after the heart. Say, Lord, I want my heart to be right before you. I want to walk in dependent obedience, relying on the Spirit of God for everything, and yet trusting you and pleasing you and making sure my heart is driving my faith. Repent of your Christian routine, if that's true, Repent of merely looking good on the outside and saying all the right words and giving everyone here the impression that you're really walking with Jesus. Repent of merely doing all the right things and saying the right words, but with an empty, independent, unrepentant heart. God said, Joel 2.13, we read it before, let's read it again, rend your heart and not your garments, now return to the Lord your God. Let's pray together, shall we? Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that this sermon is so powerful. I pray, Father, that my words did not get in the way of what You wanted to communicate and that Your Word was heard and understood. And, Father, that Your Spirit is working in all of our hearts to have it be driven by the internal man, the internal woman who has been transformed by you. And Father, if there are any here who are not born again, not regenerated, uh, maybe they prayed a prayer once or, you know, affirmed Jesus once, but Father, we pray that you would begin to work in their lives in a way to show them their desperate need to cry out to you to give them a new heart, a heart that desires to follow you, to please you, to obey you, and to love you. desires your priorities over the world's priorities and father we know that none of that will be perfect until we step through that door to heaven and yet we desire to please you with all that we are and all that we have and we'll give you all the glory for what you'll do do your work now thank you again for this time and again all glory goes to you in jesus name and all god's people said Amen. amen god bless you Thank you for coming today and uh, hope that you have a blessed week with a lot of focus on the heart. Thanks for coming.